Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 119 with Linda Kaplan-Thaler. Linda has a really cool background and experience set from her advertising and her books, and she shares one, why hard work trumps genius, two, the grit framework for reaching success, and three, the research-based 30-minute rule that gritty winners follow. So if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we mention here, that's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep119. And I'd encourage you while you're there to check out some of the other cool resources from our 10 Days to Winning at Work free email course to the Gold Nugget email summaries. Those emails have the wisdom of the guests in a quick email you can read in under two minutes. So here's a quick bit about Linda. Linda is an Advertising Hall of Famer responsible for some of America's most famous and award-winning advertising campaigns, including the Aflac Duck, Toys R Us Kids, Kodak Moments, Herbal Essences, yes, 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 and so many more. Previously, Linda was the CEO of the Kaplan Theater Group, which she grew from a fledgling startup to a company with over a billion dollars in billings. Today, Linda is a renowned motivational speaker and is president of Kaplan Thaler Productions. Linda is also a nationally acclaimed author, and together with Robin Koval, their newest bestseller, Grit to Great, was ranked one of the top business books for 2015. Mrs. Kaplan Thaler is a familiar face in the media, having appeared on The Apprentice, Good Morning America, The Today Show, CNN, and as the host of Oxygen's television series, Making It Big. Linda's talents have earned her the prestigious Matrix Award, the Advertising Woman of the Year Award, NYWIFT's Muse Award, and is one of Ad Age's most influential women in advertising. Linda is married to award-winning composer Fred Thaler and has two children, Michael and Emily. Here's Linda. Linda, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, you have a fun history and you've written a lot of catchy jingles that folks are familiar with, whether it's the uh, Toys R Us Kid or the Lessons is Yes, 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 or others. <laughs> so I just would love to hear from you. What's a little bit of the behind the scenes and how these things come about? Because my imagination is just like Jim Gaffigan's little Hot Pockets bit. It was like, what do you got for us? Hot Pocket. That's perfect. <laughs> I mean, is, is that how it goes or how's this work? Yeah, well, I will tell you that writing the Toys R Us song was a lot of fun. Actually, those kids in the commercial are now probably grandparents. I think it's America's longest running jingle. But, you know, I had always loved writing. I had my master's in music and I always loved writing children's songs and never dreamed that so many kids across the country would be singing a song that I wrote. But I hated it so much when I wrote it that Mm. I wouldn't play it for anybody. And I played it for my art director And I said, it's terrible, but what do you think? And I put it away. And then he said to me about a week later, he said, you know, I keep singing that song. Maybe we should show it to the boss. And the boss at the time hated it, but we couldn't find any other songs. (laughs) So uh, we played it for the client. The client tested it with five-year-olds and they gave it a thumbs up, the ones whose thumbs were not in their mouths at the time. (laughs) And um, what can I say? You know, it went on the air and the next week, this was the highest moment of my career, right? This little boy's singing the song. He's like four or five years old. And the mother's 
running after him going, if you don't stop singing that damn song, you're going to miss the bus for school. Oh, <laughs> I there thought you go. it's never going to get better than that. So uh, <laughs> no, I, I'm really excited and proud to have written that and a little piece of American history. It's nice. Yes. Well, that is fascinating to discover that you just didn't know whether or not this was any good. You thought it wasn't. And we had to go through several lines of sort of thumbs up before you really knew. And I guess that's just sometimes how it goes with creative stuff. Yeah. I very often didn't like anything that I did. I was terribly insecure. I guess I'm probably still insecure. And I think insecurity is a big part of it because it makes you reach further. And, you know, if I would write a script, you know, as a copywriter at J. Walter Thompson, that's when I started in advertising. And I would write it over and over and over again and stay up all night. And, you know, I was really obsessive about stuff, but I did it because I was insecure and I wasn't sure. And so whatever, you know, my boss was James Patterson, now the number one writer in the world, right? Yeah. But the time he was Jim Patterson, my creative director, and he would give me an assignment to write something and he would give me the idea. And then I would write up his idea and then I'd write three others because I couldn't stand the fact that my boss you know, would have the best idea. I insisted on try to outdo it. So, and he loved that. He loved that competitive spirit in me, you know, and I just urged that, you know, and I've tried to, whenever I can be a mentor to people say, I don't want to try to be like me or say, oh, I can write like her. I want you to be better. And my whole career, the one thing I was insecure about was surrounding myself with people who were smarter and more talented than me. It made my job so much easier. And when I first opened my agency, that was it. I was like, who can I find that's smarter than me and more creative than me and writes better than me? <laughs> and I managed to convince these people to come on board. Uh, one of them was Robin Koval. He was my business partner and also the co-author of all our books. And I knew right away, you know, I had been trying to meet with business partners and I walked into this restaurant and she had come early and she had a huge bran muffin that was surgically sliced and I had one half and she had the other. And she said, hi, I'm Robin Koval. These muffins were very expensive and very big. So I took the liberty of splitting one. If you don't like it, I can order you something else or I can just save it for later. And right away I said, that's it. It was love at first, <laughs> business partner, love at first bite. And people say, you know, was starting a company uh, a piece of cake. I go, no, it was more like half a muffin. But you know how you do, you know that quote, how you do anything is how you do everything. And it was like, I knew within those first 40 seconds of meeting her that she was going to be proactive. She was going to be considerate. She was going to be thinking of alternatives and she was frugal. All the great qualities yeah. of somebody, <laughs> and she was early, of somebody you want to start a company with. And we turned our little fledgling agency with that advertisement for Herbal Essences, the woman who was having way too good a time in the shower, mm -hmm. you know having an orgasmic experience with that shampoo. We started with that and we were soon the fastest growing agency in the United States and went from zero to 2 billion in billings and 800 people and just went on from there. But, you know, really a lot of it was just insecurity of like, we just have to work harder than everybody else. Otherwise we're going to fail. Well, that is quite a story. And, and thank you. I feel like you really took me there with the muffin and everything. So that's so good. So <laughs> Well, tell us a little bit about that paranoia and that drive to work and how that fits into your latest book, Grit to Great. Yeah, you know, so here we were, and I have to say we practiced another one of our books, which we like to have counterintuitive wisdom in our books, and that was called The Power of Nice. That was several years ago we wrote that. Because what we found was that the secret sauce that no CEO wanted to tell you was, because they thought it was a sign of weakness, 
is that when you're nice to people, they work harder Mm. and you retain them. And we practice the power of nice with our little group. And we were one of Ad Age's like 10 top companies, agencies in the country to work for because we believed in the idea of collaboration and not leading with spears and pitchforks, but really with flowers and chocolates. We ascribe to Harry Truman has this great quote. He says, you can accomplish anything in your lifetime as long as you're willing to take credit for none of it. And so we took pride in not taking credit for things and giving our ideas away to, you know, to our staff, because then, of course, they would work so much harder because they felt it was their idea. Or we'd give the ideas to clients so that they would, you know, work with us to, you know, sell our work upstream in their company. And so what we found is that we started winning like everything. You know, we were winning you know, aside from Toys R Us and the Red Cross and Herbal, we were winning big things like Wendy's, you know, which we had no right to win. We were such a tiny little agency. And we realized that Robin and I were smart. We weren't that smart. We were talented. We certainly were not more talented than any of the other agencies out there that are filled to the rafters with incredibly talented people. What we did realize is that we just worked our tails off more than any other people in the other agencies. And when we asked clients why we won businesses, they would you know, go on and on about the work. And they say, but at the end of the day, we couldn't imagine anybody that could work harder on our business. So then we started looking at people who were hugely successful, famous people. And what made them so extraordinary was how completely ordinary they were growing up. Colin Powell, C-minus student all through college until he discovered his passion for the military, for ROTC. Steven Spielberg, three times he tried to get into film school. They didn't think he had enough of a gift. Michael Jordan, and this was surprising to me, couldn't even make his high school varsity basketball team because they didn't think he had enough physical prowess. Jack Ma of Alibaba, when he graduated from college, he was considered such low potential that he couldn't even get a job as a server at KFC. None of these people had what you would call the it factor, right? They mm-hmm. didn't have Mensa IQs. We spent three years researching this whole idea of grit. They didn't have Mensa IQs. They didn't have good GPAs. They didn't have good SAT scores. They didn't have a lot of talent when they were growing up. Walt Disney, you know, as the story goes, he was fired from his first job because his boss said he lacked imagination. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. So they didn't have the it factor, but what they did have was what we call the grit factor. And, you know, being ad guys, we ad women, we came up with our acronym for what really encompasses grit. Oh, I'm poised to write. Let's hear it. <laughs> yeah, everybody out there, take it, you know, put it in your notes there. Guts, resilience, initiative, and tenacity. And as we interviewed people and as we researched and did studies, we found that this was 98% of the people who were successful had this grit factor. Now, conversely, and there was a study that Angela Duckworth did, who did a lot of work on grit at the University of Pennsylvania. Believe it or not, people who are born with genius IQs, guess what percentage of them become successful? First of all, I must ask, how are we defining success? In any way, shape, or form. In other words, achieving whatever goal that they really wanted okay. to achieve. They achieve what they wanted to. All right. Well, right. I'm going to say 60%. Yeah, 2%. 2%. Okay. <laughs> Believe it or not, and this is great for all of us out there who are not. And I always start my speaking events. I do a lot of speaking events by saying, any of you out there have an IQ of 170? Any of you play you know, the violin at Carnegie Hall? And when they go, no, I go, oh, I feel right at home. 
And so were the, these people. And then I talk about these uber famous successful people. There's an inverse relationship between incredibly high intelligence as success. And one of the things that came out of this study in the University of Pennsylvania was that people who are born geniuses, they sail through childhood, you know, sail through high school, often sail through college. You know, there's no things to overcome anywhere along the way. Then when they do hit a speed bump later in life, it is incredibly overwhelming and actually stops them from achieving anything because they haven't had any expertise in actually getting through a challenge. So when you look at people who, let's say, are dyslexic, a disproportionate amount of those people become very successful because they had to learn very early on. There's one very, very famous lawyer who's dyslexic, and he's considered one of the best attorneys in the country, trial attorneys. And the reason he's so amazing is, you know, people go, he's incredible. He spouts all of these studies and all of these cases by memory. Mm. He doesn't consult a book, but what they don't know is he memorized all these journals. He memorized the law books. He took years and years and years to memorize everything because he couldn't read, wow. you know, because reading was so difficult. So when you see him speaking, and I said, actually, I forgot his name, but I was talking to an attorney the other day who actually knew him and said, yeah, he's amazing. People don't realize that everything is from memory because he is such a slow reader. So I always say, you know, it's like turning the telescope around. It's like, look for something that you think is a weakness and how do you define it as a strength? We interviewed Haskell Wexler, who just passed away last year. He was considered one of the best cinematographers of the 20th, 21st century. And we interviewed him because, you know, Oscar winner, so famous, so many incredible movies. But we interviewed him because we thought he had this amazing weakness, struggle. And that was the fact that he was born colorblind. Now, can you imagine, Pete, somebody wanting to become a cinematographer if they're colorblind? Wow. And yeah. we asked him, I said, why did you do this knowing you're starting off with a weakness? And he was almost insulted. He said, no, 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 no. It's my biggest strength. When you can't see color, you can see gradations of black and white and grays that other people can't. So anytime he was on a film, like I think it was Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, where you had to have multiracial actors, he was the first call mm. because he had the sensitivity and a way to light them because he could see these gradations that the rest of us couldn't. So there's always a way to sort of turn it upside down and kind of look at the chair from a different angle and look at the glass half full. And that was part of why we wrote the book, because we were so inspired by the amazingly difficult challenges so many of these famous people went through simply because they harnessed their grit. Well, that is powerful and exciting. And yes, I love the stories and the inspiration. And so you teed up an acronym so perfectly, I just can't resist. Could you share a little bit about each of those components, the guts, the resilience, the initiative, sure. the tenacity, and in terms of you know, how that shows up and what your typical professional can do to tap into some more of that? Yeah, sure. I mean, talk about guts, right? I think Winston Churchill said, guts is holding on to fear a minute longer, <laughs> you know, mm. longer than you think you can. We talk about trying anything new, different, audacious, you know, the stuff that really moves you ahead in life is scary. And we said, you know, it's kind of like walking a tightrope without a safety net. So I went a little further and said, let's interview somebody who actually walks a tightrope for a living. 
So we interviewed Nick Walenda. He's from the Walenda Aerialist family. And if you might remember, Nick Walenda walked across the Grand Canyon a few years ago without a safety net. And we interviewed him, not while he was walking across the Grand Canyon, but we interviewed him afterwards. And I said, you must be nuts. You have a wife. You have three little kids. Why would you take your life in your hands? And he said, no, that was pretty much a cakewalk for me. What? Mm. We couldn't believe it. He said, no, 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 you don't understand. In my line of work, where it's literally between life and death, he said, I didn't just prepare for this event. I over-prepared. You see me walking across this tire, but what you didn't see is that I rehearsed and practiced this for five years, eight hours a day in my backyard in Florida. I had my team pushing out wind currents, sandstorm, rainstorms, mm. anything that could possibly happen on the day that I walked across the Grand Canyon, I had done 10 times harder in my backyard. And you can see in this video, if you go online and watch him do this, there's a point where he crouches in the middle and he said, I was unsure of something because a big wind draft came. He said, and then I remembered I had been preparing this for years. And he did it. And he said, we have to remember in life that it is not about the preparation. It's about absolute over-preparation. We call it in the book, The 30-Minute Rule. We did a lot of research on this and found that anytime you do something, you have a PowerPoint presentation, you have an idea, you have a script, whatever it is, when you think it's absolutely perfect, take 30 minutes more. Okay. And research has shown that that extra 30 minutes, you will actually add something and bring some spark of creativity that you hadn't noticed before. So it's this idea of over-preparation. It's also this idea of you have to create your own high wire, right? You have to constantly put yourself in this situation to go, okay, if I knew I was going to get fired tomorrow, what would I do differently today? If I knew that the last email I sent to a disgruntled customer or client said something like, well, maybe check out our 1-800 number if you're unhappy. If I knew that person or that client had 10 million friends on Facebook, would I have done that? So this notion of mentally firing yourself, putting yourself on the high wire is something that we all need to do. We're far too complacent. You know, I tell clients all the time, if you're standing still, you're going under. The world is just moving way too fast. You have to be like that shark. I mean, a nice shark, of course. Mm. You cannot stop moving because that is akin to getting swallowed up. And thirdly, get comfortable with being uncomfortable. You're supposed to feel uncomfortable. You know, Nick Walenda's great-grandfather, Kurt Walenda, had one of the most wonderful quotes I've ever heard, which is, always remember that real life is on the high wire. Everything else is just watching. So you don't want to go through life being a spectator. And, you know, Jeff Bezos at Amazon, he left his cushy job in Wall Street. Nobody thought, you know, don't ask friends or loved ones, you know, what should you take that leap into that new career? Because they want you to be safe. Jeff Bezos finally talked to the one person who gave him the best piece of advice. And that was his 90-year-old self. And he turned to his imaginary 90-year-old self. And the 90-year-old person looked back at him and said, do you really want to be this age having never tried something that you were passionate about? And we all need to have that conversation, you know, in the privacy of your own house, of course. But I mean, you need to have that conversation with that 90-year-old or 100-year-old version of yourself. And then you will be scared 
not to do it, then you will be afraid, oh my goodness, am I going to end up having regrets? And don't be afraid to fail. I call it failing forward. You know, (laughs) James Dyson, I call a serial failure. You know, he's the guy who invented the bagless vacuum Mm -hmm. cleaner. Now you look at a guy that's got a lovely British accent, just made billions of dollars with this revolutionary new product. But what you don't know is that it took him 15 years and he had 5,126 prototypes that totally sucked. Or maybe I should say they didn't suck. Uh, they were zing, zing but I'm bum. I just should have my symbol here. <laughs> and he said, I'm so glad I had all those failures because I was looking to do something that was, you know, evolutionary, a little bit better. He said, I created a completely new device, completely new device. Never imagined it would get this far. So failure is like a really good thing. And we have to let our kids fail, right? I kept holding on to my daughter when she was five when she was trying to ride her bike. And every time it looked like that she would fall, I would hold on to her seat. It took me two years. This girl, I realized one day, she might run for president, but she was never going to run the Tour de France. And this guy came up to me. He was in his 70s. He was cycling. He said, I know how to teach your daughter how to ride a bike. Put her on, balanced her, gave her a push. I said, what do I do? He said, oh, take your hands and put them in your pocket. And you know, within five minutes, my daughter learned how to ride because she fell. She fell and she fell about three or four times. She didn't want to fall anymore. So she learned how to get her balance and became, you know, now she's 21 and she's, you know, a cyclist, a figure skater and, you know, well-rounded young lady. I'd like to say I've had a hand in her success, but mostly because I've had the good sense to keep them in my pockets. So we have to let our kids fail more. Uh, I don't think the self-esteem movement did a great job of telling our kids that they were not that special. We had many, many people coming into the workforce through no fault of their own, but parents like me who ascribe to the self-esteem movement that you have to tell your children that they're special and unique and everybody's born a genius. And you know what? It's not good preparation. I hear you. (laughs) You know? Right. Well, so this is so much good stuff. So I guess I'd love to hear, you know, that notion of that 30 minute rule when you think it's perfect to go an extra 30 minutes sounds, you know, super handy and actionable. You know, what are some other tidbits that as you imagine a professional who wants to be grittier, you know, what are some sort of key practices that they should adopt right away? Well, first of all, I always say fall in love with plan B. Most of us are just steadfast that this is what I've got to do. I have a five-year plan or whatever. And my advice is certainly when I started the agency was to not have any kind of far-reaching plan, much more about sticking in the now. And, you know, the research has found that people who were dreamers, when you follow them several years later, that they're still kind of living in dreamland. And that the plotters, the people climbing up Everest with the toothpick, are actually the ones that are slowly but surely getting to the top. So it's important, I think, for people to realize that it's not going to be a straight path. And whatever your plan A is, what we found in our research is that you're probably not going to end up executing or achieving plan A. I always wanted to be a performer. That's what I did in my 20s. I was in a stand-up comedy troupe. And, you know, when I wasn't making enough money and I turned towards advertising, I realized, wow, I can be creative and actually get paid for this. This is a good career move for me. And I think that we have to stop sticking so much to this idea that it has to be this. You know, Steven Spielberg in the actor studio said the best thing he learned as a director was that his plan Bs were always always the best parts about of his movies. You know, he said, when I was doing, what's the movie with the shark? Ah! Jaws. When he was doing Jaws, 
you probably know this, the mechanical shark, they took one take and then it broke. It couldn't close its mouth. And they had spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on this shark. And like that was the movie. The movie <laughs> was cutting back to the shark. And what were they going to do? I mean, he wasn't that famous then. And then suddenly his plan B was he went to John Williams, who was doing the music, and he said, well, maybe if we can just hear the sound of the shark and not see it, maybe people won't notice so much that they're not seeing it. So, of course, John Williams came up with that famous Right. multi-trombone boom, 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 boom. and that was only done because they didn't have the mechanical shark and of course it wasn't it's what made the movie amazing because you never saw the shark and you were 10 times more afraid just hearing it rather than seeing it and so i always urge people just to be open to that plan b because it's something in the ethernet out there that's telling you that maybe you should go in a different direction i also tell people it's not about my way or the highway that you shouldn't try to be, you know, like the mighty oak tree, which is how we think of people who are gritty. It's just this direction. That's it is rather to bend like bamboo. The bamboo plant is actually much stronger than the oak tree. There's been tons written about why it's such an incredible metaphor for the way we need to live our lives is the idea of, you know, with this hollow base and strong roots is his ability to bend in every direction. And no matter how adverse the environment, the bamboo plant like just doesn't die. And that's the world that we're living in right now. You know, you come into your job, you come into, or if you have a freelance business or your own company, and suddenly you wake up and the world's changed. Certainly in the ad business that way. And this ability to be open to adapting are the people who are really making it today. And, and by the way, you know, this notion that the people who are making it you have this craziness about I have to make it by the time I'm 30. is ridiculous. It's overblown hype. It doesn't pan out in research. In fact, the people who spend many years developing an invention or an app, whatever, are the ones who are probably over 40 and most of them are over 50. And if you look at people who win you know, Nobel Prizes, very often in the 60s and 70s. So there's a misnomer that you have to do it you know, by a certain age, or I might as well give up. You know, Pablo Casals, one of the greatest cellists of the 20th century, was still practicing four hours a day when he was 93. And when somebody asked him why, he said he was bemused that he was asked the question. He said, because I'm beginning to see some improvement. So <laughs> there is no end point. And the fastest growing demographic in the world are centenarians or people in the hundreds. So I say to people in their 20s, what's your rush? You're not only going to have one career, you probably have four different careers. So take the time rather than bounce from thing to thing, which a lot of people do. A lot of people under 30 and under 40, if it doesn't work out, I'm just going to quit this job and start something else. You know, you've got to give it more time than that. Now, eventually, if it doesn't pan out, well, maybe you go to a plan B. But I think a lot of people are giving up on their dreams because they keep thinking it's going to happen like immediately. This is the world we live in where we're in a media culture where it seems like everybody's, you know, an overnight YouTube sensation. We look at The Biggest Loser and we see somebody lose 40 pounds between commercial breaks. We don't want to read the fine print that said it took them a year and a half of sweat equity and diet and exercise to get there. We don't want to see that stuff. You know, grit is not fun to watch. It's not fun to talk about. It's hard. But when you start celebrating those small victories, wow, I got that resume done wow, I was able to make those five cold calls today and celebrate the small steps that you take. It's much bigger than constantly focusing on that end of the rainbow pot of gold. 
Well, that's very handy. And I'd love to hear if you have any other sort of quick pro tips on sort of the emotional management side of things, because a lot of this just seems like there's just moments and there's some fear or resistance or some, uh, I don't feel like it somewhere inside you. And it's about sort of making the choice again and again to right. you know, take a further step. So are there you know strategies or tactics that show up kind of right there in the moment? Yeah. And some of them are really silly things. In the book, Grit to Great, we talk a lot about these grit tips. I mean, one of the craziest things in the world, which came from a Navy SEAL, which is considered one of the absolute best advice for achievement is to make your bed in the morning. Isn't that crazy? Oh, yeah, right. 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 And what he said was, it's the most important thing I learned in training for a Navy SEAL was that you need to start off the day with an accomplishment. It releases endorphins. He said, you need to leave the house knowing that you've done something. So if nothing else happens, you come back to this beautifully made bed. It teaches you to do small things perfectly because you cannot do big things perfectly unless you accomplish the small ones. We wrote another book years ago called The Power of Small. And John Wooden, a famous coach, said the most important things of all the most important things I teach my players, the first thing I teach them is how to put their socks on because a wrinkled socks will irritate your foot and then you can't play. And so it comes down to these sort of small little tidbits. One of the things that we learned, and we spoke to so many people who gave us great tips, is creating a visual totem that reminds you of your goal. For example, we often have to change the password on our computer. You know, we change it every week or we have to change it every two weeks. Well, he wanted to give up smoking and he wasn't able to do it. So he made his password his pledge, give up cigarettes, give up cigarettes, give up cigarettes, give up cigarettes. And he said within a month, I was able to give up cigarettes. I did it for a girl that had broken up with me. And I wrote the letter for, forget the girl, forget the girl. And he said, I really am encouraging people to write out whatever it is that they want to do, have it visually there. I don't care whether it's on a wall or you put it in a computer, but something that you actually see every day as a constant reminder of where it is that you want to go and what you want to do. And we call in the book, we have a chapter called Weight Training, W-A-I-T. The biggest thing that stops people is they just can't wait for it. It's just Mm. too long between, I want to do this, but it may take me five years to get there. And little tips along the way. One of the things is embrace boredom. We are our most creative when we're not at our phones, you know, we're way too addicted, of course, to the data coming in. It's become, it's an addiction that goes to the dopamine centers in our brain. So we want more and more of it. And it stifles creativity because, I mean, we interviewed the editor of the um, cartoons for The New Yorker and Bobby Mankoff, who's also a friend of my, my husband's. And he said, it, boredom is great. That's when you get your lot of rare ideas for cartoons because what happens mentally is when there's nothing going on, the brain has to fill up the space. So you make all these weird synaptic connections. It's the reason that you have ideas in the shower, you have ideas when you're walking down the street. Einstein said, you know, he worked at the patent office, one of the few jobs available for Jews in Germany and at the time. And he said it was so boring. I had a lot of time to think. He said, I did a lot of thinking. Mm -hmm. And one time he was leaning his chair back and he almost fell. And he started thinking about what, if there was no gravity, how would it have felt? And he said, and therein lies the beginning of the theory of relativity, all because I was so bored. I spent a lot of time just sort of imagining things. So we don't let ourselves be bored enough 
And we need to do more of that because it is going to be when we come up with our best ideas. J.S. Bach has a famous quote when asked how he comes up with all ideas. He's, are you afraid of not coming up with ideas? And he said, I've never been afraid of not coming up with ideas. What I'm afraid of is that I will step on them when I wake up in the morning. So in that dreamlike sense, you know, he would keep a pad, a manuscript paper next to him Mm. to jot down those thoughts. And initiative, which is part of that acronym, is sort of finding the way, finding the creative way to get at what you want to do. How do I bend and how do I focus and look at something from a completely different way? It also means embracing other people. You know, some of the best things that happen, obviously, you know, we, nobody in the world can do everything by themselves anymore. But so many examples of people who were willing to listen to people who maybe were much further down the ladder in order to improve their business. Years ago, <laughs> there was a hotel in San Diego and they had to do repairs on the elevator. So they, had, they were going to shut down the hotel and lose a lot of revenue. But they had this open policy that anybody could suggest something. And One of the bellboys said, you know, this may sound weird, but while you're doing that, why don't we put an elevator on the outside of the hotel and make it out of glass? And when it goes up, you know, people can look and see the sights of, you know, some of the beautiful scenery of San Diego. So they did it and it not only catapulted the hotel, but the looking glass elevator is now virtually in every big hotel around the world, all because they were willing to listen to somebody at 19 years of age, who, you know, had no position, but was able to go up to the CEO. So I really believe in this notion of listening to everybody. And by the way, while I'm on the subject, one of the best ways to accomplish anything is through small talk, not just people that you know, but people that you don't know. Organizational psychologists have proven that the best way to make contacts is with total strangers that you just pick up and have small talk with. We had so many interviews, so many of our books with people who just, they spoke to somebody on a train and it led to a job opportunity. They spoke to somebody when they were, uh, you know, in an airplane or an elevator and, oh, you know this one and you know that one. And suddenly there were connections made. I urge people out there, stop holding yourself in a little bubble and get out there. And every person you don't talk to is a closed door that potentially could open up to opportunities you can't imagine. Understood. Well, thank you, Linda. There's so much good stuff here. You tell me, is there anything else you want to make sure that you get a chance to put out there before we shift gears and hear about your favorite things? Yeah. You know, I just want to say that we've just come from, I've worked on several presidential campaigns, one for Hillary, one for Bill and one for Bill Bradley. And we know how cutthroat it gets and mean it can get. Never has it been as contentious as it has been in this last election, the ultimate reality show, of course. And what worries me is that when you actually look at businesses that are successful, those are the ones that have the leaders that actually are the nicest and most engaging. A.G. Lafley, the former head of P&G, which is one of our biggest clients, never said the word I or me in a speech, always very inclusive. I wrote an article called, you know, The Power of Nice in the Age of Mean, because I feel that people are forgetting this, that in the real world, I mean, not running for president, but running your own business and trying to attract clients and trying to keep employees, we are forgetting the tenets of what really makes people successful. It is hard work, but the way that you get there 
is by using the power of nice. And I just feel it's something that's being forgotten right now. Mm, Understood. Thank you. Well, so now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Yeah. I mean, I've said a lot of them already, but I do believe that the one that I said about Kurt Walenda, real life is on the highway or everything else is just watching. The other one from Beverly Sills is the opera singer. There were no shortcuts to any place in life worth going. So I do agree that anything you do is going to take a lot of time and go with it. Go with the flow. Okay. Thank you. And how about a favorite study or experiment or a piece of research? I think one of the studies I like the most is Angela Duckworth studying the West Point cadets and finding that the ones that were most able to get through the grueling West Point process, and she's sort of the founder of this whole grit movement, are the ones that were motivated by intrinsic rather than extrinsic goals. The people who made it through were the ones who were less worried about recognition and status, but whose main impetus was to serve their country. And so I think you all have to look in the mirror and go, what is my purpose? If it's just profit-driven, it's going to be hard to accomplish it. But if there's a purpose attached to it, it's going to be far easier. Oh, thank you. And how about a favorite book? Yeah, When Breath Becomes Air, a doctor who knew he had six months to live. It's been on the bestseller list for like months and months. I urge everybody to read it. You will appreciate your life in ways you cannot imagine with that book. Oh, thank you. And how about a favorite tool, whether it's a piece of software or app or product or service, something that helps you be awesome at your job? Evernote. Evernote. <laughs> every t- I used to copy, you know, I used to print out studies and every time I read something in the paper, it goes right into my phone on Evernote. And I'm telling you, it's the best tool ever. I've heard other people talk about it too. You never have to have any worries about collecting things. It just goes right into Evernote. So perfect. Thank you. And how about a favorite habit, a personal practice of yours that's handy? Okay, this is the one that I live by. I work out at least an hour or an hour and a half every morning before I do anything. Oh, I'll brush my teeth. Mm-hmm. Before breakfast, before anything, an hour of strenuous workout. It can be treadmill, it can be weights, it can be taking a Pilates, but I have to do at least an hour. And if I only do 50 minutes, then I have to make up for it later in the day by doing weights. One hour every day makes you so high and happy and energized. And by the way, a new study came out. You exercise in the morning, you sleep better at night. And that only applies to the morning time? Yeah, only the morning time. Hmm. Oh, well, thank you. And how about, uh, is there a particular sort of Linda original quote that seems to really connect and resonate when you're sharing it with audiences? Jeez, I have a lot of fun ones. You know, they say that women are not as empowered as men in the workforce. And I say, you know what? When I started my agency, we had so many women in our agency. We had enough estrogen to make Arnold Schwarzenegger ovulate. (laughs) Women power. Oh, that's fun. (laughs) And what would you say is the best place for folks to learn more about you or get in touch? Yeah, well, they can Google me. I'm on YouTube. If you look up Linda Kaplan-Thaler, you see a lot of my work. By the way, we did commercial with Melania Trump several years ago for Aflac. Aflac! That was one of our little creations too. And you'll see her in that commercial. She was terrific. She was a lot of fun to work with. But you also see my examples of a lot of speaking events I've done. My website is www.kaplanthalerproductions.com. And Thaler is spelled, it's a weird name, T H. A-L-E-R. 
kaplanthalerproductions.com and you can get a look at all of our books and just stuff I've done over the years and a way to contact me. And I'm not shy. I'll give you out my uh, email address. It's linda at sailorproductions.com. Again, I don't work in advertising anymore because I love speaking about topics like this. And I speak all over the world now and happy to speak to a company, to a nonprofit and many colleges. I love speaking at colleges. Oh, fun. Thank you. Well, Linda, do you have a final parting call to action or a challenge for those seeking to be more awesome at their jobs? Yes. It's not about no. It's about yes and and yes, but. Can you elaborate just a little bit on that one? Yes and yes, but. Yeah. You know, I studied improv when I was in theater and in improv, you're not allowed to deny when somebody says something. You can't say they're to Noah on stage. You have to always go with them and add to it or twist it to another place. That's called the yes and yes, but. So anything that you want to do instead of saying, well, I can't do this, which of course is what they would call a um, fixed mindset rather than a growth mindset, as opposed to, okay, this didn't work out. Okay, now, and I should try this or, but maybe I should look at it a different way. And it really changes your perspective on things because then when you shut it off and you have this very fixed mindset, you don't go anyplace. But with this sort of yes and yes, but it just keeps going. Mm, Understood. Thank you. Well, Linda, this has been so much fun. Thank you. And I wish you lots of luck and more fun speaking engagements and books along the way. And it's been a real treat. Thank you so much. And hello to everybody out there. And best of luck with whatever you decide to apply your grit to. I dig that 30-minute rule so much because you do often find those things when it really counts. It's worth the time to check in and it's amazing how it seems perfect, but then oops, oh, it wasn't quite. And then you get over the top. So again, if you want to check out the show notes, the transcripts, the links to Adam's mentioned, drop on by awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep119. And also I encourage you, if you haven't already, please push the subscribe button so you won't miss from folks like our next guest, Dr. Beatrice Chestnut. She will address the question, Are there, in fact, nine types of people, nine types of leaders? She is an expert on the Enneagram, and we go back and forth and say, is that for real, and what does it mean? So I hope to catch you then, and peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Oh,